Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of Podcast 360, your go-to resource for medical news and clinical updates. I'm your moderator, Jessica Bard, with Consultant 360, a multidisciplinary medical information network. Dr. Samir Shah is here to speak with us today about his session at ACG 2022, titled Updates in Dysplasia Surveillance in IBD. Dr. Schatz, a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. If you don't mind just introducing yourself for the audience, please. Sure, happy to. Thanks for having me. I'm Dr. Samir Shah. I'm clinical professor of medicine at Brown University and chief of gastroenterology at the Miriam Hospital. I have a longstanding interest in inflammatory bowel disease, particularly uh, dysplasia detection uh, using chromoendoscopy. And uh, this year, I have the pleasure of serving as the president of the American College of Gastroenterology. Let's start with an overview of your session at ACG. Sure. So it's well recognized that patients with inflammatory bowel disease, both ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease, if they have at least 30% of their colon involved, are at higher risk for colon cancer over time. And we start doing screening and surveillance for colonoscopies usually eight years after they've had the disease, looking for uh, dysplastic lesions and removing them to prevent cancer. There are certain uh, scenarios where patients are at much higher risk because they have other conditions like sclerosis and cholangitis. And those patients with both sclerosis and cholangitis and IBD get annual colonoscopies right from diagnosis of the PSC and IBD and other risk factors like family history of colon cancer. So over time, we've figured out that the risk was not as high as we once thought, which is great. And that's partially because we're better at finding things and removing them. And partially because uh, our therapies are much better in terms of controlling inflammation and decreasing the risk of cancer by controlling inflammation. What would you say are the controversies in dysplasia surveillance in IBD? We know there are quite a few. So everyone agrees that patients should have the colonoscopies and surveillance, and there's actually some uh, agreement and some guidelines have come out. A few years ago, the ACG guidelines came out, and last year, the AGA guidelines, and they all agree that that we should be doing colonoscopy using a high-definition scope if available. So the high-definition scope has just much better clarity, lets us see cell and flat lesions. And then the controversy is, is then what to do after the high-definition scope. Should we be doing any sort of chromoendoscopy? And there are two forms of chromoendoscopy. One is virtual chromoendoscopy, where we use some sort of electronic enhancement. So on Olympus scopes, there's something called narrow band imaging, and on Pentax scopes, eye scan, and then there are other platforms that are being developed. But basically, they use technology to help see subtle and flat lesions better. It helps highlight things. So it's almost like if you were driving at night and you had suddenly had night vision, you can see those subtle things better. The other way is dyspray chromoendoscopy, and dyspray chromoendoscopy was first described by Dr. Rolf Kieschlick in 2003. There are two dyes that we commonly use. One is methylene blue, which is a vital dye. It gets taken up by normal tissue and not by abnormal tissue, so that way it highlights abnormal areas. And then indigo carmine, or a substitute for that called FD and C number two. Now, indigo carmine does not get absorbed. It just kind of hangs out in the grooves and can be washed off. But by hanging out in the grooves in the mucosa, it lets you see subtle things a, a lot better. And so uh, the older studies with standard definition scope showed that you did much better if you used chromoendoscopy with dye spray. The newer studies are mixed. Some studies show that you don't need it. The dye spray doesn't add anything. Other studies show that it still adds something. And I'm in the camp where I think the dye spray still adds something. 
what's really exciting is the newer studies also show that the virtual chromodoscopy, which is much easier and less messy, you don't get dye everywhere, works probably as, as, as well as the dye spray chromodoscopy. You'll see I'm in a shirt and my uh, white jacket, but about an hour ago, I was in scrubs because I was doing a chromodoscopy case and I did not want to risk getting the dye on my clothes because it's hard to wash off. So you mentioned your view and kind of where you stand on those controversies. Is there anything else that you'd like to add, Dr. Shaw? Yeah, I, I definitely. So if, if we look at a couple of studies, and there's one study I particularly like uh, from Spain published in, I think it was 2016. It's a little bit older, but they did a really nice job. And they sort of self-designate themselves as this was a, a quote-unquote real-world study. And they took people in practice, so community GI doctors, as well as specialists who specialize in IBD and had experience in chromoendoscopy, and they had about 350 patients and they underwent colonoscopy and immediately afterwards went uh, colonoscopy a second time, this time with dye spray. And about half the patients were done with standard definition scopes, the other half with high definition scopes. And they showed that they found a lot of lesions after with the dye spray that they missed with standard scopes or without the dye spray. And it didn't matter whether it was a standard definition scope or a high definition scope. And it didn't matter whether they were an expert or non-expert. They didn't see any learning curve. And, and so the take-home message is dye spray uh, increases the yield regardless of what kind of scope you're using and regardless of whether you're an expert or not. So I think that's really good evidence. And then there were two recent studies, one from China, which is a multi-center study, another one from Sweden, both used chromoendoscopy. One used methylene blue, the other one used indigo carmine, and all had high definition scopes. And those also showed that even with the high definition scopes, the chromoendoscopy dye spray increased the yield. So I think it makes sense to, to do that, and the training is not that hard to get there. Now, the studies that showed no difference, they had only one or two people doing the chromoendoscopy or the other techniques, and these were highly trained people who are good at finding POPs regardless of what you give them. So I'm not sure that's applicable to everybody else. I think you make a compelling argument there. How has the research in people with IBD and the risk of developing cancer evolved over the years? I know you had mentioned before that the risk is not quite as high as we originally thought. Yeah. So the older studies uh, were uh, from referral centers and they have the sicker patients. And also back then our scopes weren't as good and our preps weren't as good. So the newer studies that are population-based show that the risk is, is lower. It's a hard thing to, to study because it takes uh, many years for lesions to develop and turn into cancer. And so we use surrogate endpoints like finding dysplastic lesions, but ultimately we want to know whether we're really preventing colon cancer or, or decreasing the amount of times patients have to go through scopes. A lot of our studies are retrospective or single center. Um, to do the prospective studies takes a lot of time and effort. What's exciting is now that there are some initiatives underway to look at patients long-term and to answer these questions in terms of what's the best way to do it you know, with a high definition scope, is, is chromoendoscopy a virtual, a virtual version as good as dye spray? And do we need random biopsies? And then the most exciting development, I think, is uh, incorporating artificial intelligence. So using computer technology to help us find polyps and, and not miss, miss them. And those studies are just starting to come out now. Now, I know you had mentioned some differences while talking about the controversies, but could you go a little bit deeper and provide an overview of a comparison between the different imaging modalities? Sure. So, so the sort of default imaging modality is standard white light with a high definition scope. And then some people will use chromoendoscopy where they basically press a button on the scope and they get a different view. And with that, you can see subtle lesions better. And some of the more recent studies also show that that's equivalent to, in fact, a meta-analysis comparing virtual chromoendoscopy to dye spray chromoendoscopy showed that it was equivalent. 
there was a nice study presented at DDW this past May uh, from uh, four centers in Europe that compared virtual chromodoxy dye spray. And interestingly, they showed not only was it as good, there was less false positives with the virtual chromodoxy. So the dye spray, they were picking up the pseudo polyps and little bumps that were nothing. Whereas with the virtual, they weren't seeing that as much. So not only was it as good, but perhaps a little bit better. So those are some of the subtleties. The other place where, where people disagree is when to do random biopsies. So most people agree that most lesions are visible, but we can still pick up, and even in the latest studies with high-definition scopes and chromodoscopy, about 20% of dysplasia is picked up only with random biopsy. And so what we've advised is that patients who are at higher risk, so they have long-standing inflammation, they've had previous dysplasia, they have a history of primary sclerosis and cholangitis, PSC, which increases the risk of uh, dysplastic lesions, or they have uh, a family history of colon cancer at a young age, or had lots of pseudopolyps. And those patients who are particularly high risk to, in addition to whatever you're doing, to also do multiple random biopsies. So these random biopsies, what I mean by that is taking at least 32 biopsies. So it takes a, a while to do. And you're taking them from each segment of the colon. So you take four biopsies from the cecum, four biopsies from the ascending, four biopsies from the hepatic flexure. So some people do it by section that way and other people do it by number of centimeters in from the rectum. So 80 centimeters in, 70 centimeters in, 60, et cetera. So that's in addition to taking out anything visibly that you see. What would you say is the future of dysplasia surveillance and IVD? What does that look like? We know artificial intelligence particularly is playing a growing role. Yeah, so I think the studies will show that if we use a high definition scope and a form of chromoendoscopy, whether it's virtual or dye spray, and combine that with artificial intelligence, we'll be much better at finding lesions. And we probably won't need to do the random biopsies, perhaps not even in the higher risk patients because we won't be missing stuff. And then we can increase the interval and our patients will be grateful not having to prep uh, every year for a colonoscopy if they can even go every three years or every five years. The other things that people are looking into, but uh, the data is still emerging, is there anything else we can do to chemo prevent uh, colon cancer? And so far there isn't, but there's interest actually in whether any of the medical therapies we use can, can do that. And then whether, believe it or not, the statins, the uh, drugs to use for cholesterol, there have been some studies that have linked those to decrease colon cancer risk. And there have been older studies looking at ursodiol or ursodioxycholic acid, which is a bile acid, to decrease colon cancer risk as well. Other studies have looked at looking for stool DNA to try to predict who needs a colonoscopy. Those have not been great, but there's still interest in that. And finally, people are looking at blood tests to see if they can detect the little proteins or, or signals that there might be dysplastic lesions anywhere in the body. And so that's under development as well. That's fascinating. What would you say are the overall take-home messages from our conversation today and from your session? So number one is to make sure you risk stratify the patient. So a patient with mild, who's in remission without uh, major risk factors, you can wait eight to 10 years after diagnosis and then go every three to five years, especially if we don't find anything. So risk stratify. Number two, make sure you have a great prep and take your time doing the colonoscopy. You can do either virtual or dye spray. Make sure you're using a high definition scope. And then remember that in 2022, there's still a role for doing the random biopsies in the highest risk patients. Well, thank you again for being here today. Is there anything else that you'd like to add, Dr. Shaw? No, just uh, thank you for having me. And I hope I, I get to see you at Charlotte at our annual meeting for the ACG in, at the end of October this year. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you.